ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Hi, I'm Dori Shafrier, and along with Kate Spencer, I host Forever 35, a podcast about the things we do to take care of ourselves. Join us every Wednesday with guests like author Phoebe Robinson, chef Samin Nosrat, actress Busy Phillips, and even former Secretary of State Madeleine Albright. On Mondays and Fridays, we have mini episodes where we answer listeners' questions on everyday problems like how useful a butt mask really is, how to deal with a petty friend, or how to relax after a long day. So join us Monday, Wednesday, and Friday on Forever 35, where we're not experts, but we are two friends who like to talk a lot about serums. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com. I'm Helen Scales, marine biologist and a writer. And I'm Shay Rhodes. I'm a journalist and filmmaker. And this is Earth Unscrewed. This living planet of ours is just jaw-droppingly amazing. And we're not exactly taking care of it, are we? We've got oceans full of plastic, species dying out at a phenomenal rate, whole ecosystems being destroyed as we speak. Our daily lives are affecting this incredible place. And I guess the big question is, well, is it too late? We're going to find out a bit more about sustainable projects which could fix the problems. And hopefully unscrew the planet. Hello and welcome to Earth Unscrewed. In this episode, we're travelling into space. Well, not not us personally, or not now, anyway. No, well, instead, we're actually going to explore how reaching for the skies can influence our perspective of life here on Earth. Well, the first time I looked at the planet was going uphill on my first flight, looking over my right shoulder and seeing this big, round blue ball just floating there in the blackness of space. A huge percentage of what we know about things like global climate and how that's changing and why came from satellite data and always has come from satellite data. I think we've only just begun to scratch the surface. So I definitely think that the perspective of space exploration and space science is absolutely crucial in our challenge of figuring out really how this planet works. First up, it's a man who's actually ventured into space. Yep, that's right. And we had the privilege of interviewing a real live astronaut. Yeah, he spoke to us not from space, but from his car, actually, as he was driving through Arizona. My name's Mark Kelly. I'm a NASA astronaut, or used to be. I flew my first space shuttle flight in 2001, my last one in 2011, and I was the final commander of Space Shuttle Endeavour. Well, the first time I looked at uh, the planet was uh, going uphill on my first flight during powered flight, launching in the rocket ship Mach 15, looking over my right shoulder and seeing this big, round blue ball just floating there in the blackness of space. 
any images you've seen of Earth from space don't do it justice because it's 3D. You got depth perception. We're literally going around, you know, this round ball every 90 minutes. So there's a sunrise or sunset every 45 minutes. You know, the other direction away from the Earth, it's just black. It's incredible. You know, we're in a little tiny blue dot in a solar system in a pretty uh, obscure part of the galaxy. Well, when you see the planet, you know, as this single round sphere floating there, you don't see borders between countries. So it just appears that uh, this is something that uh, we're all one big team and we're all in this together. The planet just in general appears pretty fragile. Space is obviously a very hazardous environment. Fortunately, we live on quite the, the oasis uh, here on planet Earth, and we've got to make sure we take care of it because it's got to last us forever. And it doesn't take you long to realize that uh, we need to do a much better job taking care of the planet. Just amazing. It's quite ironic, isn't it, that some of the first few people who saw the Earth like this would have been people, you know, who are either Russian or American who were involved in the Cold War in this us-versus-them fight, and then they get there and go, oh, I don't think us-versus-them matters anymore. And apparently lots of people who've been up into space and who've done this, looking back at the Earth, they say it gives them cosmic perspective. It was, I think, the astrophysicist Neil deGrasse Tyson who talked about that. Right. This, this cosmic perspective or the overview effect of looking back at our, yeah, our pale blue orb suspended in the deep darkness of space. So there were 10 years in between Mark's first trip into space and his last. And as he gazed back on the planet, what differences did he see? The changes we have made to this planet are uh, noticeable from, you know, a single person orbiting above. If you can see them from space, they're pretty significant. The big noticeable thing is deforestation and primarily in the Amazon, just because it's a place that over, you know, the last couple decades. But for me, you know, it was a, a decade that separated my first flight to my last flight, and then I had two in between. And you could watch the, the disappearing Amazon rainforest, and it's, it's replaced with pasture, you know, with fields for, obviously you can't look down and see like cattle, but it's, you know, we're basically cutting down Amazon rainforest at a at an extraordinary rate. It seemed to me that over the 10 year period, there was more pollution over the Eastern part of Asia. It has gotten worse over time. There are days in Beijing where the pollution is really, really bad. It's, it's shockingly bad. And you could see that from space as well. Very rare that you can see, you know, through that pollution, to the surface of China from orbit over the planet. It's very noticeable, and you, you look down and you say, well, that's not good. It's not good for any of us. It's just shocking, isn't it? I have to say, the idea of being able to see mm -hmm. the changes to our planet, just, you, you know, by mm -hmm. looking out the window of the space station or space rocket. Totally. That must have been quite shocking for him. I've had a, a, a minor version of that experience, actually, flying over the Amazon, I haven't done it, you know, 10 years apart, but even in one journey from Brazil to Bolivia, you can see 
big patches of rainforest and then you can see big patches of logs and trees that have been chopped down. You can see burnt patches and then you can see pasture. It's almost like a continuum as you fly over. You can see it happening. Mark, of course, saw with his own eyes the scale of the damage that we're doing to the planet um, and it had a big impact on him. Ultimately, if we carry on screwing up the planet, could Mars be our planet B? Well, first of all, it's that uh, Mars is not a plan B. I don't care how bad it gets on Earth. It is going to be harder to live on Mars. And, you know, sustaining people on Mars for an extended period of time is going to be very difficult. I, I also believe we should send people there. And sooner rather than later. It's, it's you know, we're explorers. It would be great to see people on Mars. But people, you know, us, us building a colony on Mars, I think, is it's kind of far-fetched, uh, in my opinion. You know, when we traveled to the moon in the 1960s, what we really found was we found ourselves. We learned more about what it means to be a human. And humans are explorers. We want to see what's over the next hill. We want to see what's across the ocean. We should do these things, but it is not plan B. You know, Mars, no matter what we do, is going to be always more difficult to live on than Earth. So for the next, you know, millennia, this is going to be our home. This is it. OK, well, that rules out Mars then. Uh, no planet B. We can't just abandon Earth, even if we wanted to, which, of course, we don't. But how have Mark's experiences in space changed the way he lives now that he's back on Earth? I do a better job recycling. You know, I even recycle batteries now. No, I, I really do. I, uh, I, you know, I think about these things a lot, you know, emissions, I have solar energy on the roof of my house. I'm, I'm meeting with a guy today, in fact, to look into a rain harvesting system for my house. I guess the question is really this idea of getting a, a real amazing view of our entire planet and then translating that into local mm. action. But mm. we have to find solutions down on the ground and things to, to change here. I mean, especially we, we live our lives so kind of looking inwards these days, looking at pictures of ourselves on screens and, and you know, imagine just looking up one day and seeing the earth hanging there. How would that change everyone's ideas of things? Definitely would, I think. Well, now we're going to hear from a man who, like Mark, believes in the earth-unscrewing potential of space. While he hasn't had the privilege of travelling to space personally, he's on a mission to make space more accessible to companies with ambitions to help unscrew the earth. My name is Will Pomerantz, and I'm the Vice President for Special Projects at Virgin Orbit. And I'm talking to you today from our factory in Long Beach, California. Here at Virgin Orbit, we don't fly humans to space, we fly satellites. Uh, so we're flying things that humans have built that might be the size of your refrigerator at home. They might be as small as a bottle of wine, so somewhere in that range. Uh, but these are satellites that have been built by everyone from, you know, the industry leaders at NASA and the European Space Agency, um, but also things that have been built by hot new Silicon Valley startups or, or even by schools, universities and crowdfunded campaigns. And, and we're carrying those up to space. We certainly see our, our mission here as opening space for everyone. We really care about how space can be used to serve planet Earth. 
space actually already has had a massive and very beneficial impact on all 7 billion people living all around the world. But also we feel like those effects have really been limited by the fact that space missions just aren't very frequent. You know, last year in the entire world, there were only 90 launches to outer space. It's because the flights are so few that they are so expensive, and it's because they're so expensive that they are so rare. Uh, so we're really part of a wave that is coming in and trying to break that vicious cycle. Where we're really innovating is in a lot of the manufacturing techniques, a lot of the operational techniques that will allow us to build rockets that don't cost hundreds of millions of dollars, that cost substantially less than that. And to have rockets that don't take years to build, but that can be built in months. And in terms of what people are doing with these missions, the creativity and the ingenuity which the world has brought to this idea of how do I use a small, affordable, quick to build, flexible satellite? How do I use that to make the planet a better place? It is almost unimaginable. A huge percent of them sort of get up to space and, and then turn around and look back towards our home planet and are providing interesting insights, technologies and assets that help us all here on planet Earth. Satellites have been doing that for a while. A huge percentage of what we know about things like global climate and how that's changing and why came from satellite data and always has come from satellite data. If you wanna find you know, holes in the ozone layer, if you wanna measure the surface temperature in every bit of ocean on the planet or high level winds or, or anything else, if you wanna measure concentrations of, of carbon dioxide or, or methane or other greenhouse gases, you know, satellites are a really fantastic way to do that. And the more satellites you have, the better the data you're gonna get. Either because your data becomes higher resolution and you can see you know, smaller amounts of these trace gases or you can pinpoint their exact location down to uh, you know, a precise enough location that you can discover where the, the leak in your pipeline is or, or whatever else it is. Or simply because you have better what we call temporal resolution. So instead of getting a picture of an area once every six months, maybe you get a picture of that area every six days or every six hours. And now you really are able to tell those not just seasonal changes or annual changes, you're able to tell those monthly or weekly or daily or hourly changes. So you can really start to pinpoint, hey, where are we wasting resources that we don't need to waste? Or where is there a leak or a problem that we didn't even know happened and, and we would be able to address if we were only just aware aware that it happened and where to send the people or, or the machines or the robots or the ideas or whatever else it is. You could also use that data to capture people who are doing illegal fishing or who are cutting down the rainforest. There are other systems already in space today that will only get better and more ubiquitous that allow us to get incredibly more efficient in all of our shipping and transportation industries. Obviously, if you were able to make every cargo ship on the planet, you know, be able to plan its routes a little better and not have to wait in ports and, and not arrive two days before it's needed, but arrive just on time or whatever else, that can have a massive impact on the amount of fuel consumed, on, on ocean pollution, on, on, uh, on air pollution of all different kinds. And you can apply that to, to everything else. You can measure the shadows on the uh, floating lids on top of oil reservoirs to, to tell how much oil is in individual containers you know, in, a, in a foreign country to be able to, to have intelligent, reasoned uh, opinions about what that's going to do to commodity pricing and maybe what that might mean about the market for renewables in those places and when should we go in and provide these incentives or start building these solar grid projects or, or whatever else. 
with that data, you can dream up a million and one fascinating uses. Uh, I, I think we've only just begun to scratch the surface of what happens with, with global data sets like that. He keeps on making me think about my house. Because whenever you try and think about energy efficiency in your house and reducing the amount of energy you're using, the first stumbling block you come across is monitoring, knowing what you're using anyway. When do you use it and how much do you use and, and why and what times of day and so on and so forth. And it's exactly the same with the Earth. If you want to unscrew it, it'd be really nice to have a proper eye on it, see every bit of it, monitor it, measure it, and then figure out actually you know, which bits are screwed and which bits aren't and how potentially to unscrew them. Yeah, absolutely. And our last feature is with an esteemed astrobiologist. He's interested in the relationship between planets and the types of life that a planet can host. My name is David Grinspoon. I'm an astrobiologist at the Planetary Science Institute, and I study the habitability of Earth-like planets. So I, I study the evolution of planets and try to understand where there might be life in the universe. When I was young, humans were heading into space for the first time, and literally my earliest vivid memory is of the Apollo astronauts landing on the moon, and that was just so exciting for me. It seemed like science fiction, but it was real. having some difficulty understanding the voice communications between the pilot and the ground controllers. Uh, best information I am able to gather. And then I got very obsessed with the first missions to other planets, the first robotic explorations of Venus and Mars and the outer planets. Astrobiology is the scientific study of the potential for life in the universe. And so we study the, the history of life on the planet, uh, on our planet, the only planet we know of yet with life, and try to understand its limits and its general patterns that we might extrapolate to other worlds. And, and one thing we've learned about life on Earth is that the life and the planet have sort of co-evolved and shaped each other. You know, we are, as has been said by others, a new geological force here. That's why people call our current time the Anthropocene. You know, never before has a new kind of geological force been aware of its own existence. And so our time is very fraught with danger. You know, we have these powers that we don't know if we can control our own influence. We don't threaten the planet or the biosphere, but we threaten the stability of the current planetary state to the point where our own existence may be threatened. But there's at least the potential there for a feedback between the perception, the awareness of our own influence, and the way we carry out that influence. And if that awareness gets fed into the way we act on the planet, then there's potential for a very different kind of outcome than a lot of us fear, where there can be a long, sustainable phase of a planet's existence where this self-aware cognitive geological force becomes integrated gracefully into planetary functioning. And that's the vision, I call that Terra Sapiens, which means wise Earth. We are fortunate that just at this challenging time when we find ourselves changing the planet, we also have the ability to leave the planet and look back at ourselves. If we didn't have Earth observations from space, 
we'd be really flying blind into this Anthropocene era of human-induced Earth changes. The fact that we now have thousands of satellites looking back on ourselves, in a sense, the planet is self-observing. And that's an important aspect that gives some hope because at least now we have the ability to really understand our influence, map and perceive and understand the way the planet is changing and how we can mitigate those changes and operate the planet more intelligently. You know, we need Earth observations, but also it's not just Earth observations, the potential now to travel to other planets and, and study Venus and Mars and, and elsewhere. and use that insight from comparative planetology to have a deeper understanding of our own planet. You know, we, we gain a lot of understanding of Earth from seeing other examples of planetary evolution and, and just the different processes that go into controlling climate change and geologic change and, you know, all these aspects of the complexity of Earth are uh, illuminated by seeing how they've played out on other planets. So, so I definitely think that uh, the perspective of space exploration and space science is absolutely crucial in our challenge of figuring out really how this planet works and what our proper role is in acting upon the Earth in a way where we, we ultimately help the biosphere maintain its health rather than threaten its health. New Horizons was a mission to explore Pluto that was conceived in 1989 by a young band of dreamers who were told it was not a good idea and didn't give up. And eventually, after major battles for funding and solving technical problems, and they kept going and they had a mission that got approved. And ultimately, in the year 2006, it launched from Earth and it took nearly a decade to travel out to Pluto across the whole solar system, the farthest exploration we've ever done. And in the summer of 2015, New Horizons spacecraft reached Pluto and spectacularly revealed a beautiful and mysterious and scientifically rich world that we're still puzzling over. It's a pretty remarkable story of sort of achieving a goal against seemingly unlikely odds. And so I think there's a lesson there even for, you know, solving some of our problems like climate change, that people will say, oh, it can't be done, it's too technically difficult, uh, we don't have what it takes as a species. You know, I say, well, look at this story. Here's some people that decided something was important and they figured out how to solve the technical problems, they figured out how to solve the political problems, they didn't give up, and against all odds, they did it. There are also practical lessons in terms of what we learned about other planets and just the fact that Pluto was not at all what we expected when we got there and was a much more interesting and vibrant place. We're still trying to understand what that means in terms of planetary evolution, but it clearly means that we, we didn't know as much as we thought we knew. And that's important because, you know, whether we like it or not, we're sort of managers of a planet now to some degree, and we have to understand everything we can about how planets work. And so when we expand our awareness and go out to other worlds and discover new things about planetary origin and evolution and functioning, that feeds into the overall competence we have in understanding how planets work is really key right now at this juncture in history. There are some pollution issues with 
some of the effects of, of rockets going through the upper atmosphere and then the, the issue of space junk in the collecting in, in orbit. As we expand our efforts into space, which, which I believe we absolutely must do to have a sustainable future, we do have to be conscious of the effects we're having on these new environments we're operating in and, and figure out how to uh, you know, minimize the negative effects. And you know, there are people working on these problems. And one very positive development is the fact that we are now developing reusable spacecraft. Space is going to get greener as well as cheaper and more effective at solving our problems. Thanks, David. So it seems the biggest problem really with space is just how much fuel it takes to get there. We can't get away from that. Mm. Yeah, big heavy things, although increasingly smaller objects being shoved in space, but still takes a phenomenal amount of fuel. But there are some positives on the horizon there. Yeah, so people are already coming up with ideas of using water as a source of fuel, which seems pretty space agey to me. Splitting water is the key thing, and I guess plants do it. (laughs) There are some really exciting developments going on with artificial photosynthesis. And one team at Harvard are looking into this and have come up with a really efficient way of harnessing energy from sunlight and using carbon dioxide to split water into oxygen and and hydrogen. And I was reading, I think it was something like 30% efficiency, which is way more efficient than plants themselves. And they're using bacteria if I'm right, that they are actually kind of basically harnessing the ability of bacteria to do this for them. And this is if you feed them pure CO2. Right. Which would also be good for removing CO2 from the atmosphere or at least making it carbon neutral. Or you could hook them up to a power station and they could just breathe pure CO2 pretty much. It reminds me of our discussions a few episodes ago about alternative fuel sources and using fatbergs and things like that. And I guess it just reminds me of trying to think creatively about how we power the vehicles that we use on Earth, out in space as well, mm-hmm. the same thing. And it doesn't have to be the old way of doing things. Although, speaking of the old way of doing things, the, the straightforward sail. You know, obviously in the old days they used sails which were powered by the wind. Well, there is a form of wind in space, which is solar wind. Right. Energy photons flying out of the sun at a huge speed. If you built a sail large enough... Theoretically, you could pull your spaceship through space using just that. It's so cool. Mm. Well, who knows what the next generations of astronauts, rocket scientists and astrobiologists are going to come up with. You can pretty plausibly trace the origins of the modern environmental movement as we know it back to some of the first images and some of the first data that came from space, giving us all this sense that we do live on a relatively small and fragile world, that our atmosphere is this really thin layer, that the borders between countries are, are for the most part, imaginary lines. So, you know, space really already has served us in in that way, um, but we think it could do so much more. Thanks for listening to this episode of Earth Unscrewed. If you're interested in space or any of the things we've been talking about today, don't forget to check out our website for a bit more reading. And there's a link in the description of this episode. And so until next time, from me, Shay Rhodes. And from me, Helen Scales. Bye. Bye.
ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Hi, I'm Dori Shafrier, and along with Kate Spencer, I host Forever 35, a podcast about the things we do to take care of ourselves. Join us every Wednesday with guests like author Phoebe Robinson, chef Samin Nosrat, actress Busy Phillips, and even former Secretary of State Madeleine Albright. On Mondays and Fridays, we have mini episodes where we answer listeners' questions on everyday problems like how useful a butt mask really is, how to deal with a petty friend, or how to relax after a long day. So join us Monday, Wednesday, and Friday on Forever 35, where we're not experts, but we are two friends who like to talk a lot about serums. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com.